so the Office of the Inspector General undertook this audit in light of the upcoming changes in the agency's human spaceflight missions, specifically the Artemis mission to the moon and eventually Mars. So starting in November 2020, uh, we took a look at, at how the agency aligns the astronaut corps to achieve its mission objectives. Uh, we focused in on the processes NASA uses to size, train, and assign its astronauts for its missions. So what is the thousand foot view of the program right now? Um, you know, what's the makeup of it? Uh, who's in it? Absolutely. So the, the astronaut corps conducts the agency's human spaceflight missions. Uh, currently, the International Space Station or ISS mission is the only operational crewed mission uh, with astronauts traveling aboard the commercial crew programs, SpaceX Crew Dragon or Russia's Soyuz spacecraft. Uh, in addition, the astronaut corps is integrated throughout the agency and relied upon to help develop processes, procedures, and systems for key programs, uh, such as the human landing system, which will be used to transport astronauts from lunar orbit to the moon surface. Also, astronauts serve as the face and voice for the agency uh, to help inspire the, the next generation of explorers, scientists, and engineers. So that's kind of the high-level overview of, of what they do. Currently, with, with the makeup of the astronaut corps, there are 44 active astronauts, uh, down from its peak of nearly 150 astronauts in 2000 during the, the shuttle program. Uh, astronauts are, are either assigned to a crew and undergoing significant training, uh, stationed aboard the ISS, uh, returning from a crewed mission and, and reconditioning along with conducting public outreach, or, or working in a leadership or liaison role. So as part of our audit, we try to dive a bit deeper into the makeup of the Corps, looking at employee status, race and national origin, gender, and prior background or career field. Uh, we found that currently 64% of the, of the Corps is made up of NASA civil servants. Uh, the remaining six, uh, 36% is comprised of detailees from the armed forces. Uh, so we encountered a little bit of a challenge here when trying to get into some of the more specific demographic information, as NASA's human capital system only tracks its civil servant workforce and their self-identified demographic information, meaning a little over the third of the astronauts' demographic data isn't accessible to us. Um, Recognizing that this 36% of the core is is lacking, um, we were able to look at the look at the, and report on the 28% of the or the 28 civil servant astronauts uh, and their self-identified demographic data. It showed that basically 50% identified as white, 6.8% identified as African American, 4.6% as Asian, and 2.3% as as Hispanic. Um, so we were able to use additional sources of data, including astronaut biographies, to to report on the gender of the full astronaut core. 64% are male and 36% are female. Then getting into some of the prior occupations, we found that 36% were engineers, 25% are pilots, 25% are scientists, and 14% are medical doctors. Um, and then the last bit of information kind of on the, the high level overview is in, in addition, this past December, NASA selected a new class of, of 10 astronaut candidates, uh, four women and six men. So the process to bring on these new astronaut candidates started back in 2019. Uh, however, it was delayed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And so it's just important to note here that the recruiting and hiring process typically takes over a year to complete, which is then followed by a two-year astronaut candidate training regimen. And then once assigned as, as to a spaceflight mission, additional training of 18 to 24 months. So big picture meaning it takes nearly five years to fully onboard a new astronaut and have them ready for a crewed mission. Yeah, there's a lot to cover there. Uh, I wanted to just start on what you just talked about, though, the, the onboarding process. Can you give me a scope of how maybe that's changed over the years or is there, uh, you know, has it gotten more rigorous or have they, um, you know, focused more on uh, physical aspects or, or not as much, I guess, would be the, uh, the, the assertion that most would probably think. Um, but I, I'm just interested on anything that you found there. 
So that wasn't entirely the focus of ours, but we did we did meet with uh, the Human Resources Office out of Johnson Space Center in Texas, where the astronaut office is located. Um, so their recruiting process, typically when they announce a new candidate class, gets anywhere from 12,000 to 15,000 applicants. Uh, so what they've done over time is they've tried to refine what some of the, the needs will be um, to kind of hone in on who those who out of that 15,000 will make it forward to the the future rounds of interviews um, and testing just to, to make sure that they're getting the best candidates possible. Um, so they've, they've kind of changed it a little bit there, but they've largely stuck with having a broad spectrum uh, of, of applicants and then kind of focusing down on some of the needs based on the future um, spaceflight mission needs of the agency. Right. And uh, as far as the size goes, you talked about a little uh, how they the core itself kind of shrunk or not shrunk, maybe it's not the right word, but lessened after the uh, discontinuation of the space shuttle program. Um, if we looked at a chart, would it kind of be a bell curve? Cause I imagine it started with a very select few and then grew and grew and then went back down again. Again, I don't know if you looked into the historical <laughs> aspects of it, but um, just anything that, that you were told there um, as far as the amount of astronauts involved fluctuates. You're absolutely right. It does look like a bell curve um, with, with a significant spike during space shuttle. And I think that obviously depends upon the number of space flight missions that are ongoing and, and the frequency with which those flights happen. So obviously during shuttle, you have a, a larger number of astronauts able to fly and fly more, more regularly. So you needed a larger core. Um, as shuttle was discontinued and we've now moved on into, into the ISS era, there are routine flights or, or regular flights. Um, however, it's limited seating and there's limited space available on, on ISS. So that's kind of dictated the number uh, and the current size of the core. Yeah. And let's talk about the limited seating. Um, as far as the structure of the core goes, is it on a skills based set of who gets to actually, you know, go up into space or is it, is the seniority play in it all? Or what, what were you uh, told there? Absolutely. Yeah. So the assignment process is, is one of the areas that we did focus in on and, and discuss. So it's, largely at the discretion of the chief astronaut. Um, again, specific skill set needs that are required kind of play into that, but usually the emphasis is on having a good mix of, of a crew. So having people that have never flown before, so giving them the opportunity to get spaceflight uh, experience, as well as having experienced crew members so that they're able to kind of guide and, and mentor the, the astronauts that they have uh, on their on their crew. Additionally, so like some seniority plays into, into effect there, but largely it's kind of a, a good mix of inexperienced as well as experienced uh, astronauts, as well as kind of focusing on some of the specialties. Yeah, on training, you know, is there a lot of on-the-job training when you're an astronaut, or is it kind of like you got to know your, well, you definitely got to know your stuff if you're selected, but um, as far as continuously developing uh, the, the workforce within the Corps, what are NASA's efforts there? Absolutely. Uh, happy to answer that question. So again, there's continuous training once you're assigned to a crew, and that's generally tailored to each individual astronaut. Um, so when you're hired into the astronaut corps, you come in as an astronaut candidate, you go through a kind of a two-year introductory training. And, and introductory, I mean, runs the gamut from basic to, ex to expert. Um, so all of the new astronauts that they just hired, the 10 new astronauts, will go through this two years of training um, on any number of systems, robotics, extravehicular activities, so spacewalks, um, as well as Russian language training. Uh, and so then as the agency is now moving into the Artemis mission, they're in the process of developing the framework, which will identify the training needs and then also develop that training regimen. And that's, that's one of our significant findings from the report. 
All right, now that you've paved the way for me to become an astronaut, uh, we could finally talk about the audit. Uh, what were some of the um, you know key findings that uh, you all pointed out um, as far as this audit goes? So we had three major findings in our report. So the first one, again, that we've touched on is NASA's processes to size, train, and assign its astronauts are primarily aligned to the ISS mission, and the astronaut corps is well managed to accomplish that mission. Uh, second, the processes used to size and train the corps pose risks to the kind of evolving emission needs and the agency objectives. Uh, so those processes could benefit from a review of five key factors in light of the expanding space flights and agency missions to, to help avoid crew reorganizations, extended training periods, and mission delays. Uh, so those factors include the safety margin, meaning there are a sufficient number of astronauts available to meet agency flight manifest requirements. Uh, second, that the rate of the the rate of astronaut attrition can be relooked at. Third, the demand for astronauts in program development roles like for the human landing system, Orion, et cetera. Uh, and fourth, the monitoring of skill set needs for the future missions, as, as you touched on kind of how the agency and how the astronaut corps has evolved over time based on the mission needs. Uh, and then the fifth is a collection of that data specific to astronaut corps to help inform the agency and missions diversity and inclusion efforts. Uh, and so then that, that third finding uh, was basically that the, the training framework and the training regimen to prepare astronauts to successfully complete the Artemis mission hasn't been formally established. So it sounds like a lot of workforce needs uh, are going to be within the recommendations. Uh, were there any uh, recommendations outside that parameter or uh, what, what do you got for me? <laughs> so we had four recommendations for the agency really to ensure the core's alignment with its future mission needs. So the first two recommendations, again, focus on the process for sizing the core. So centralizing its collection of detailed astronaut data to better support the size and alignment process um, to meet those strategic goals for the future, including Artemis and expanding the diversity of the core. Um, as part of this, again, recommended the agency review its safety margin and the factors that might can, might change with the addition of Artemis to ensure a sufficient number of astronauts are available. Uh, and then the last two recommendations, again, focus on the training for the astronauts uh, for the upcoming crewed Artemis missions. So Artemis 2 is planned to launch uh, no, no later than May 2024. Uh, and they, the agency needs to establish that framework of boards and panels to identify the training needs, build the training regimen, uh, and start to get astronauts into those training flows. I think, as, as we noted throughout our report, uh, NASA is currently well positioned to meet the needs of the ISS mission and is in the process of addressing our recommendations to help position the astronaut corps to meet the Artemis mission's goals of landing. Uh, the first woman and first person of color on the moon and eventually Mars. That's Jamie Smith, a project manager for NASA's Office of Inspector General. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher and and did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.